This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. Afghanistan is pretty mountainous, so we would fly people into position. We were about 400 feet off the ground when they shot an RPG and went through the belly of the aircraft. I got knocked out the back. And so for the last 150 feet of descent or so, I just was hanging by my monkey tail out the back, just kind of flopping around in the breeze till they landed. And then I had to climb back in and unhook myself so I could get free. The injury to my brain and my jaw were in the blast. The injury to my spine and what later on turned into all the nerve issues in my feet were due to hanging off the back of the Chinook and shaking. I want to show the world that your life isn't over after injury. The injury doesn't define us. The mental health issue doesn't define you. The way I do things today looks completely different than the way I used to do things. But that doesn't invalidate the fact that I can still be competitive. I can still go play sports. That was the beginning of me realizing that I really wasn't alone. Growing up, sports was the one place where Beth King felt in control. She played soccer at the collegiate level, but ultimately decided to dedicate her life to a different cause and join the military for her career. But in 2011, she faced something on the job that no one could ever prepare for. While on deployment to Afghanistan, an RPG hit the helicopter she was flying in, igniting the gas lines on fire. Beth fell out of the aircraft and dangled from her backstrap until they were able to land. This caused trauma to her spine and led to a brain injury. A few months after her accident, Beth began to experience symptoms of PTSD. She fell into a depression and struggled to leave her house for four years. Through Wounded Warrior Project, Beth was able to turn her longtime passion for sports into a way to cope with her trauma. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. I want to know what sports was like to you as a child, and if you were always just very athletic, drawn to sports, and what it was like for you, that relationship that you had with sport when you were younger. From a very young age, I came from a very active family. I did soccer, basketball, softball, spent some time doing some karate. All up until high school, I pared down to just basketball and soccer, and then in college, I played just soccer. I loved sports. It was where all the pieces of my life just kind of fit together. I had a lot of learning disabilities that in the classroom was a struggle. So sport was a big deal for me. It was where I felt peace and successful. What was your go-to sport? What would you? What did you play mostly? What did you like? What were you drawn Soccer. To? It was soccer. Yeah. Yeah, I was a goalie. <laughs> you know what? Before you even said that, I was going to say, wow, you sound like me. <laughs> and then you go, yeah. I was a goalie. And I'm like, Huh, makes sense. You and I have a lot to talk about. It was the best position on the field, in my opinion, because uh, I like to, I, I used to charge out of the box because it would intimidate people and they'd stop. Uh, I scored a goal in one game in college as a goalie. Like I took the ball right down the field because they, they were all just kind of back. I'm like, what is she doing? It's kind of nice. <laughs> that, <laughs> I've never scored a goal. I know other guys yeah. that have, but I never did. But so I, yeah. I envy you for that. I would like to understand why the goalie position is the best position, because to me, 
it's the worst position. So maybe uh, you two can hash it out in front of me why it's the best position. I'll let Beth go first. <laughs> well, one, I'm an identical twin. So my twin sister played offensively. So as the goalie, I saw I could see the whole field. So um, basically, you could usually you can if you know what you're looking for, you can see an attack coming before they even realize what they're about to do. So I just think being in that position, it's easy to see everything and you can anticipate and be very successful at it. And there's a thrill in people charging you and get trampled. And, you know, so there's that uh, extra adrenaline boost. Maybe maybe I just see it as the best position because I, I always had someone to feed back out to because uh, my sister and I just had this link. So nine times out of 10, we didn't even need to talk. I just, she knew where to be. So I'd get the ball, I'd throw it. You know, she backed me up. Um, when she could see me coming out, she would drop back and help out, protect the goal while I was being crazy. I always felt like it, it was a position where I had some control of the game. Like I, I had some control in yeah. the win and loss, even though I couldn't score. But if I didn't get scored and I played well, I, I had control of the game. Did you feel the same? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of like being able to see the whole field is that I had a perspective that no one else had. So I had insights. So if we during the halftime or whatever, I could say, hey, this is where we're going wrong and they could address it. So many of the athletes we've spoken to, Beth, have spoken in a way that made me believe that one of the gifts of truly elite athletes is their ability to anticipate, to be several steps ahead, to read what was coming in a almost bizarro way more than most of our us mere mortals on the on the sports field and it's you use that term as well the ability to anticipate yeah to be able to see what's coming was that your experience Corey too that you you could read well that's why I became a broadcaster that's why all of us ex goaltenders become broadcasters because you see the whole field and then when I sat on the bench I could see the whole ice right so you know exactly what this is going to so being that and being able to anticipate and see the field, and you have to be able to read the play, right? Obviously, being a goaltender, you have to be able to read what's coming, who's where, what's that. My guess is, and I'm going to ask you this, that must have been extremely beneficial in the military for you. No, absolutely. I think, I don't think even until after I got out did I realize how much I utilized it. My job in the military was I was a crew chief in a Chinook. So it was two pilots, a flight engineer, myself, and a door gunner. It was all about understanding that you have certain sectors that you're responsible for, but the more that you pay attention to what other people are saying and doing, basically being able to see the whole field and taking in all the information and being able to process it, you're able to make better decisions about what your approach should be and how to go into a situation. Having an identical twin is a unique life experience. Talk about that relationship a little bit, Beth. Well, I like to tell people that we were best friends right from the split. She's just always been a part of everything from the very beginning. She's always been my best friend. I was a little bit introverted. I still am. So she'd go make friends. And then when I'd see her interacting, I decided they were safe. I'd come over right from preschool age, right on up. When I deployed or when I went to basic training and training before we deployed and during deployment, my son actually lived with her, which was amazing. You know, and now she's... My caregiver, like she helps me with the things that I can't do now because of my injury. And as I'm trying to find my way back to be fully independent, she's right there, you know, celebrating the wins and helping me through the losses in life. And I think that's really probably my biggest key to success has been having that support. Someone that really gets it. And on some days knows that we just can't talk about it. We'll just sit quiet and that's okay. 
Can you talk about what it was like growing up in your house? What kind of family life you had early on? It was rough. (laughs) My dad was a Vietnam vet. Back then, we didn't deal with mental health, PTSD, or anything else like that. So it was a very rough upbringing. Like I say, less of sports was really my escape. She played all the sports along with me. So I have a really good relationship with my parents today. After my incident, and I got, not immediately, but shortly after, like a couple of years after my incident, I started getting therapy and started working through my trauma. Uh, my dad one day just opened up and said, you know, I had this experience and it was this crazy story about this incident he was involved in in Vietnam. And a light went on in my head and I was like, you know, a lot of this stuff clicks. Like I can see how the things, the choices he made while we were growing up were completely PTSD driven. And I think it gave me a little bit of sympathy and compassion for him. And we've been able to work through some of that. Um, So the family I have today is much different than the family I came from. I know exactly what you're talking about, but many people don't understand what it's like to grow up with a parent who has PTSD that's never been recognized. If you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about what rough meant? Because it's it's fantastic that you've found this new place, this new relationship, but I don't think people really get what it's like to live with PTSD, which I want to learn more about your experience now, but what it's also like to be a child of someone who has unaddressed mental health issues related to a deployment, uh, a military experience. I'm trying to be careful with how I say what I say because I don't want to say anything in a way that comes across as anything other than honesty. But it was, you know, my dad was physically abusive and looking back on it, I can see how certain things triggered him. And I don't think we understood that we were triggering him or certain sounds or sometimes smells, or he would just all of a sudden get very angry and aggressive. And as a child, you don't really understand what's happening or what happened or, you know, it was just always very much felt like I just, none of us were enough, whereas perfection was expected. And I think I realized after my own incident and my son, I came home, my son has was seven years old and I was getting agitated by every little thing. And I think it's like when you're in a life and death scenario, the little things start to matter more. It's easy to get complacent when everything's, when you're safe and things seem smooth. So when you're complacent, you overlook a lot of the minute things but then when you've been in this position of I should have died I do not know why I'm even still here all those little things um, were huge safety violations in my eyes and so I think just understanding that and realizing that I didn't want to go down the same road that I that my dad did that I I wanted to make a healthier choice and I didn't want my son to pay the price for what I was dealing with is actually what led me to get help is we were just expected as children to be perfect and little adults and in control at all times. I've yet to meet a child that's like that. Maybe we can step back a bit. What led you to the military? Can you talk about your journey? Did you always know you wanted to be in the military? And once you did decide, what was that like for you? I think right out of high school, I wanted to be in the military, but my twin sister would not go with me. I wasn't comfortable going by myself. (laughs) So I I put that off. 
Uh, we ended up going to college together instead and playing some soccer. And Why did you want to go to the military? Why? What was it that drew you there? I think I just wanted to get away. My dad raised five of us on a military income, so I knew that it would, you know, I've never met too many people that have gotten filthy rich off the military, but I know a lot of people that have survived. Educationally, I didn't have a lot of value in myself. I was a, I was a jock. I was, you know, really good at building muscle and making plays. And I wasn't sure. I had no real direction. I just was looking for the next thing, the thing that would make me independent and get me by myself. And, you know, it just seemed like a good option. I mean, I actually ended up joining the military. I believe I turned 30 in basic training. So I, I joined late between high school. And then I had a son. And as a female athlete, your options as a career in sport is very limited. And to be honest, I don't think I had the discipline back then. I loved playing and I was good at it, but it takes a lot of work to be at the elite level. It takes a lot of drive, even off season. You know, there's a lot of things that you have to have your mindset. You have to be focused. And I didn't have those things in my youth. I had my son and I was 24 years old and realized I didn't have a good way of supporting him. I didn't have a real good formal education. I lived in upstate New York, about 30 miles from Canada. I circled back around in my head. I was like, you know, you did you did used to say you wanted to join the military. That might be an option. So I would, did some research and ended up doing really well on all my testing. Picked my job and left for basic. And in basic training, I realized this is kind of nice. It's like, get up at the same time. I don't have to make choices about what I'm wearing. Like all the small little decisions in life are gone. You know, I just have to show up and do my part. I excelled, maybe partly because I was older. Like I was 30 in basic training with a bunch of 18-year-olds who are struggling with being yelled at. And I'm like, I grew up in this. This is nothing. <laughs> so I went to basic. I did really well. I went to my training school, AIT. I excelled there. I went to my first unit. I got selected for aerosol school. I went and I was one of three women in my whole battalion that graduated. And from that moment forward, everything just kind of fell in place. It was easy. I just had to show up and do my job. You know, it wasn't complicated. It was kind of brought me back to playing sports. And there was a family in that, you know, like my unit is very much like a family to me. You know, we're all going through the same struggle. So you have people to connect with. And when you're having a bad day, you have people that get it. So being a female and then going into a male-dominated profession and world. How did you handle that? Let's start as a child in sport and then go when you get into the military and how you handled that being a female in mostly male-dominated situations. Well, I think as a child, I don't think it really, I don't think I really was aware of it because all the sports back in the day, like all the town leagues were, were all co-ed, they were intermingled. So we all just played together and it was just if you were good, you were good. And if you weren't, then you better hope they bring a snack. <laughs> <laughs> bring a baggie of oranges and the yeah. juice boxes. Yeah. 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 But in the military, I think one of the benefits of the way I was raised is my dad did not have a lot of respect for females at all. So I was brought up in a way that I always felt like I had to prove myself that I deserve to take up space or to breathe air, that I was worth something. So going into the military, it was a lot of the same. It was like I was the only female in my unit. 
up until they started realizing, like, I never asked for help. I trained harder and longer. I was in the books more. I was just trying to to be seen as equal to them. I was doing twice the work just so that I wouldn't need to ask for that help. So I wouldn't be seen as the wink link on the chain. When I had a lot of people that would make comments, like I promoted fairly quickly, uh, mostly because I was driven and I wasn't going out and partying. So like I would go to work, I'd go home and I'd study. I knew my job. I was really good at my job. To promote, you have to do more than on your job. You have like they accumulate points for all these different things. So you get a certain amount of points for each of them. Like you have to pass a physical training test and you get points scored for how you do. Being the only female in my unit, I realized the, the disparity and the what's what's expected. Like as a female, I could max my push-ups at like 20-something push-ups in two minutes. But as a male, it was like 75. So I went and I trained and I trained until I could do 77. That was my my best PT score. I did 77 push-ups in two minutes. And so when people would say, of course you promoted, you're a girl. Look at your PT. I'd say, yeah, but look at my scores. Look at what I actually did, not the minimum from what's required of me. So I think that mindset of I have to prove myself came with me from childhood. When you were on the Schnook, were you seen as one of those six members of that team? In training, once I was signed off, I feel like we were a team. There's only one moment in which I really felt like I wasn't seen as equal. That was after we had, we were shot down. I was kind of dangling out the back. The flight engineer was getting ready to go run through the burning part of the Chinook to get to me. And I was like, I can get myself off. Like, you get off, you know. But he was like so much wanting to just come rescue me. And I know that's, and I don't think he meant it in a bad way, but. Once I was fully trained and signed off, I really do feel like my unit saw me as an equal member. Can you talk about what happened that day that led to your injury? Because you were you were working with your team. Yeah. We had spent the week previous to that getting ready for a big air assault. So Afghanistan is pretty mountainous. The area we were working in was very treacherous by foot. So what we would do is we would fly people into position, uh, fly their equipment into position. They would complete their mission, and then we'd fly back in and pull them out. And it wasn't tactically advantageous for them to walk. So we would drop them off, get them ready, and then pick them back up. And we had spent a week getting them prepared to assault this mountain. And the last two days before that day, we had been taking a lot of fire coming through this one valley, but there was no other way around it. We had to go through this one way, and there's only one way in and one way out. And like I said, we had, so we had been there for about a week, in and out, in and out, in and out. So they, they knew we were going to be there. So that day, we decided we were going to fly higher than normal so that we were out of range of what they were shooting at us. When we got to where we were supposed to be dropping people off, we had to circle to lose elevation. In the circling process, we were about 400 feet off the ground when they shot an RPG and went through the belly of the aircraft. And we were transporting 13 people and a bunch of weaponry and ammunition and a John Deere Gator that we were transporting in. And the RPG round came in about four feet in front of me and into the engine block of the John Deere Gator. 
it lit off and all the soundproofing went up in flames and um the airflow on the chinook it just basically comes right through the cabin and out the tail so i was on the ramp hinge and i had pulled my ramp up so that we could land i was right on the hinge and so right behind me it's like coming up at an incline and the fire just starts coming and it's like going behind me and around and i i was uh kind of backing up the ramp trying to keep myself out of the majority of the fire till we got on the ground and they were trying to get it on the ground it kind of shook around quite a bit and i got knocked out the back and so for the last 150 feet of descent or so i just was hanging by my monkey tail um, out the back just kind of flopping around in the breeze till they landed and then i had to climb back in and unhook myself so i could get free that's where the the injury to my brain and my jaw were in the blast. The injury to my spine and what later on turned into all the nerve issues in my feet are, were due to hanging off the back of the Chinook and shaking. Was that when one of your colleagues ran back to try to detach you because of the fire? When I was hanging off the back, my mic button had, uh, we have intercoms on our, so our headsets so we could talk to each other in flight. And so they were calling for me, but my mic cord had gotten hung up and I couldn't quite get to it. So I could hear everything he was saying, but I couldn't respond. So I finally I was frantically trying to get to my mic button so I could communicate. And then he's like, I'm going, I'm going. And I finally got my cord and I was like, get off the aircraft. I'm good. And I was like, I'm coming. I was like, just give me a second. How did you get out of there? You got in, you got yourself detached. How did you get everyone out to safety? We were actually like right outside of where we were supposed to be landing, like maybe a quarter mile at most. So what we did was basically ran to the wall of the fob that we were going into. We had to crawl through the window in the tower and then they called for the Air Force to come send another bird to come get us and bring us back to our home base. What happened after, immediately after that? You, you've just had this life-threatening, horrifying incident. Not just the fact that you were hanging out the back, but that you had fire on your helicopter. What kind of response did you get from your colleagues? Was there any discussion about you need some kind of care here? What happened? We had a very high mission need, like they need and very low crew members. So we actually all got cleared within four days to go return to duty. I had severe pain in my face and my head and my back and you know i was just i was beat up and i had asked to um, see the doc and they basically did a accident report so when how much sleep did you have when was the last time you ate when was your last day off and pretty much cleared us all back to duty and so i had complained that i was in quite a bit of pain and they were kind of like, well, you were just in a blast and a hard landing. So, of course you're in pain. Here, take some Motrin. So, that's what I did. I took some Motrin and I went back to work. And um, at first, I felt like, I think I was a little bit, I don't want to say nuts, but I was off my rocker. I was very much like invincible. You know, I was like, I was like, let's go. Let's go get them. I'm not phased. I'm good. And as weeks went on, I actually realized that I was having a much harder time with it than I thought I was. I started having really bad anxiety to where I couldn't eat before the flight. So 
I would get food to go. And then like two hours, three hours into the mission, I would eat a little bit. And that was all I could eat because then we'd get home. I'd be so physically exhausted from the emotions that I would just go back and rack out and then get up the next day and do it all over again. So I started immediately disturbing my, I went to a three hour sleep cycle at that point where I was only sleeping like three hours a night and I was struggling to eat mostly just because my nerves, every time I ate, I got sick and my anxiety was so high. But about a month after the incident, I actually had an accident on the fob. Um, I got hit with a four by four in the hand and broke two bones in my wrist. So they put me in a cast and said I couldn't fly anymore. So at that, that point, I just did ground maintenance. So I took care of the helicopter and got them ready for mission for the last couple of months of my deployment. So you had no real medical assessment of your <clears throat> injuries from flopping out the back of a burning Chinook. Yeah, that's kind of like been my driving force or the message I feel like is really urgent is that it doesn't matter how minor you think uh, brain injuries are serious. And I think at the time, I, I probably would have only been like a moderate brain injury, but we left it untreated for 18 months and I continued to degrade. Things continued to get worse and it was all preventable had I known what was happening and had my command understood like medically what was happening. But it was pretty much uh, my physical body looked good. I didn't have any real signs of anything being wrong. I started using wrong words or stammering. And that was the first signs of things like really getting worse. And then I started having like my whole right side got heavy. And I started getting like a foot drop in my right foot. And then I was falling a lot. And like I said, other neurological things start to happen. It wasn't until about 18, 19 months in that I got to be seen for traumatic brain injury at all. And that was by accident. They were getting ready for another deployment. And they had noticed that I had been on the chief complaint of headaches for like a year and a half, like since the incident. And they were like, that's too long to have headaches. You have to go see a neurologist. And because for flight companies, we have special medical requirements, like certain things will ground you. You won't be able to fly until they're figured out. And I think if you have a headache for longer than 30 days, you have to go through a certain protocol before you're allowed to return to duty. So I went to see the neurologist. She heard everything that had happened. She was like, I can't clear you. You have to go over to TBI and get cleared by them. And that was the beginning of my realizing the what I was actually dealing with brain-wise and starting the road to recovery with that. You said one of the reasons maybe is that there weren't enough people. There were not enough team members to continue uh, mission-wise. Uh, we were on an out, we were on an outlying fob, so we did not have a lot of medical support. We basically had two flight surgeons and a bunch of medics. I think we had one x-ray tech and for me to get any type of real treatment, I would have had to leave theater. And they didn't physically see anything. I think they just assumed everything was a stress response. And that, um, one of the struggles of being female is that everything is, has to do with I'm hysterical or I'm overreacting or I'm being overly emotional. Not just with me, but with society. You know, like 
a man seems like sometimes if a, a man gets angry and yells, then he's justified in his anger. And if a female gets angry, she's being hysterical. You know, it's like just a different way we look at it. So I complied with what I was told to do. I didn't continue to throw a fit. I said, I have this complaint. They said, take some Motrin, you're good. Get back to work. And I went back to work. And part of that is also on me because like I said, I, I didn't want to be seen as the weak link. So it was hard. It was physically hard. It was emotionally hard. It was exhausting. I just kept going back and doing what I was supposed to do because I, I didn't want to be seen in a bad light. You have the weight of you're the first female to ever be fully progressed and trained as a crew chief in this unit. And if I failed, what would that do for future females? There's some pressure there that I don't think people realize above and beyond just wanting to be seen as an equal member of the team. But when you're the first, you're, it's either going to be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, you're either going to set other people up for success or you're going to close their minds to ever considering another female again. That's a hell of a lot of weight to carry on yeah, one think. woman's shoulders. <laughs> Good God, uh, that that you viewed yourself because it was critical, valuable position, but to wear all that. Sorry, uh, no, and the loneliness of it to feel that pressure and then to feel like you must have felt like you're on an island in a way, and then yeah, that's a lot of pressure, and then to feel like you can't say anything or even because everyone's looking at you. You know, I know my. Uh former first sergeant has, you know, on multiple occasions been like, I just, I feel like I failed you. I should have done better. You know, and it, it goes both ways. I should have valued myself enough to say, this is a real problem. Something is really going on. I knew something was wrong, but I was more afraid of being seen as weak and incapable than I was of, than I believed in myself and my worth and my value. You know, and I, I think that's what drives my get help. You know, you're worth it. Even if no one else thinks there's a problem, individuals know their bodies better than anyone else. And, you know, if something feels off, it probably is, you know, like it's worth investigating. This seems to me to be a lasagna, just layers and layers. But there are solutions to this. And it sounds like you're focused on what are some of the solutions? In more reality, I think the, the, the biggest solution is that we get education out there. Education, not just about injury and getting the help that you need or mental health and getting the help that you need. But we need to be educating our young girls and young ladies and women into seeing their value, even when no one else sees it. I think a lot of spaces in our society, as women, we're taught to just be quiet and be polite and to not speak up for ourselves when something's not right. And, you know, a lot of that is inbred in us sociologically, not just, it wasn't just in my family. You know, it wasn't just like something that no one else can relate to. I was talking with a, another soldier and he was like, you know, it's hard for us as men to admit that we're hurt as well. And I was like, it's true. But when you go to the doctor, they listen. <laughs> when you go to the doctor saying your heart is beating 190 beats per minute and you were doing nothing when it happened, you get a at EKG, I got told I needed to go on an anti-anxiety <laughs> because they were sure it was just, it was all mental health. There was no physical issue, you know? So there is that little bit of difference. So I think not just female or male, but as humans, I think we need to start raising our children different, you know, to valuing themselves and who they are and honoring their truth, not making it wrong to admit you need help, you know, because... I have met many great men and many great women that have 
gotten where they got not by themselves. Like everyone has someone who supported them along the way somewhere. And they've had battles that maybe the public doesn't know about. But I think a lot of times we see success as people who have it all together all the time. And that's not true. I think true success comes when even in the hard times, you continue moving forward. Uh, You continue to dig deep and stand up even when all you want to do is lay down. That's really where the battle is won. Beth, what injuries from a mental health perspective did you ultimately sustain? Did you have formal diagnosis ultimately? Uh, Yeah, I have post-traumatic stress disorder as well as they call it generalized anxiety. Basically, PTSD is solely about things that trigger the the main event. But I developed anxiety about so many more things. (laughs) You start to realize the danger in everyday life, that feeling of complacency and just going along and haphazardly like driving down the road. I'm triggered back to the event, but also like the sun comes through the sun, the the windshield, and it's hot on my face and I feel like I'm back in the fire. My heart rate raises and, you know, I have those anxieties. But then I also have the fear of, I'm going to die somehow before I get back to my loved ones. And you know, if we just had a fight and I'm worried about things being out of my control and what if something happens and I have things left unsaid or, you know, but it's debilitating. It's not just like I'm worried because I just had a fight and I got to be able to make it right. But it's like overwhelming and all encompassing. And just knowing that I could die at any second, um, they could die at any second, that life is uncertain all these pieces of things that matter um, that you don't realize that matter until it's too late. And it's like all that just kind of hanging all over my head. So PTSD looks different for every person. When you think about PTSD, what is has your experience been like? And I will note that a lot of what you said when you were describing your dad, clearly he had symptoms of PTSD as well. How How is your experience different from that? For me... Mostly is physiological, like my heart races, I sweat, I want to vomit, I get angry, like at the drop of a hat. Well, it'll be like something small will happen, but it will trigger that feeling that I had that night inside me. And I respond like I'm at war instead of responding to the same level of which the threat is. It's like my whole body goes back into flight or fight in that moment on that helicopter. And I think that's the best way to describe it for me is that it is an over response to different stimuli, you know, that brings me back and I respond like I'm at war instead of responding like a civilian dealing with a stubbed toe. It's that, <laughs> you know, I mean, that hypervigilance <laughs> always waiting for something to happen. Is it, a, is it still affecting your sleep as well? I've improved some. I get about four and a half to five hours of sleep at night these days. Sometimes it's very broken. Some nights I get less. I wake up in a panic attack. I don't remember my dreams or nightmares anymore, but I wake up with my heart pounding and sweating. So I'm sure I'm still having the nightmares. I just, I don't really know 100% what it was exactly I was dreaming. What kind of treatment have you had? What's worked? What hasn't in your work to try to overcome the symptoms you're experiencing? Oh, man. Well, I don't really like this question because I feel like 
just because something hasn't worked for me doesn't mean it won't work for someone else. Thank you for so saying I that. Think I appreciate should, that. <laughs> I feel like people should try whatever they need to till they find what works. I did prolonged therapy, prolonged exposure, which I absolutely hated, and it was torture. I did mindfulness training and talk therapy and art therapy. In all honesty, I think what I found the most effective was the, a combination of art therapy, talk therapy, and sport. I found a lot of healing in sport. I'd be getting worked up and irritated, and I knew I was responding too strongly. Then I'd go get on my bike and go ride 30, 40 miles and come back and then readdress the situation. Like just burn some of that, some of that anxiety out, some of the anger out. You know, and in the beginning, I was a lot more. I had a lot more anger in me, I think, because I didn't have the time to process through actually what happened physically and emotionally. I didn't have the time to process through what my life looks like now. And in the beginning, I thought I had lost my career, that I was going to be sitting in a rocking chair for the rest of my life doing nothing but going to medical appointments. And I was really angry because I've always been a very big goal-driven person. And, you know, it took some time. I hated every breath I drew. I feel like Lieutenant Dan. I should have just died on the battlefield. I was angry to make it back. And then I did some talk therapy and some art therapy, and I started working through some things. And then I found sport, and then I started connecting with people again. And I realized that the more that I did, the more that I realized I could do. And that the way I do things today looks completely different than the way I used to do things. But that doesn't invalidate the fact that I can still be competitive. I can still go play sports. I can still be a parent. I can still be a sister. I can still work. Right now, I'm currently, I'm just starting back up to school, getting my degree in exercise sciences so that I can go help other people with injury, find their new passion and move forward and recover. I think a lot of it is realizing that the injury doesn't define us. The mental health issue doesn't define you. It might be a piece of who you are but it is not all of who you are and there have been a lot of a lot of things i've tried uh, therapy wise that i've not really wouldn't say it's my favorite but i have moments where i still utilize it i hate mindfulness but there are moments where i need it i hate breathing techniques they piss me off because i struggle to concentrate on the breath me too and to, con to constantly have to pull myself back i feel like i'm failing at breathing like it is so <laughs> agitating, but there are moments when I'm traveling and I am about to lose my mind that I really need to breathe. I don't know if I answered your question well, but I, I feel like all forms of therapy are valid and they have their place. And just because they didn't help me in the immediate moment, I still, I still pull back to some of them occasionally. I'm so glad, actually, by the way you answered that and how you started it, because when I first started treating PTSD, we the psychologists were all using prolonged exposure. This is what everyone was taught. This is the only way to do it. And over many years of working with so many psychologists, we came to decide that for some people, it actually causes more harm than good. And yeah. we do know in medicine and also in the psychological field, you have to fit the treatment to the individual. It yeah. has to be personalized. Did you ever have um, any kind of medication treatment? And if so, how did that go for you? We tried a lot of different things medicine-wise, but um, I am sensitive to side effects. And because of the traumatic brain injury, um, I have 
chronic headaches and migraines and a lot of the medicine would spike my headaches. So I have gone not the way of the pharmaceutical industry for medication. I've gone more holistic and herbs and stuff like that. Diane, you've treated military members with PTSD. I know you used to work with a lot of them, and you're very knowledgeable in this area. Can you first explain what PTSD is and what the symptoms can be? So PTSD is a mental illness. It's a psychiatric disorder that is associated with exposure to a traumatic event. And trauma is subjective. So what is traumatic to one person may not be to another, but I think most people can agree on generally what would be traumatic and certainly what Beth described are horrifyingly traumatic situation in a life-threatening situation. So what is necessary for a trauma to be considered severe enough to provoke PTSD is that someone's life is in imminent danger, they're at risk of serious injury, or someone very, very close to them is at risk of serious injury, or their life is seriously threatened. And what happens is when you're exposed to a traumatic event like that and you develop PTSD, it's important to say that most people don't just have one event and then they have PTSD. Almost all of the patients that I met who, through the military or otherwise, that develop PTSD had other trauma in their life. So it does tend to be something that accumulates over time. But there's often one major traumatic event that is very important in the development of PTSD. And for Beth, it was this, this accident. But many of the military members I work with had childhood abuse, chaos, neglect during their childhood that made them perhaps more vulnerable to developing PTSD later on. As far as the symptoms go, most people who have PTSD have a constellation of symptoms. It looks a little bit different for each person, but some of the most common features are that they have recurrent, unwanted memories, relive the event, maybe have nightmares. So they have intrusive memories of the event that they wish they didn't have to keep reliving over and over again. They have changes in the way they physically or emotionally react. So they're hypervigilant, hyperaroused. That's why most people who have PTSD really struggle with their sleep. They're quick to start. They're triggered quite easily. They also tend to avoid. I don't want to think about anything that reminds me of that. They already have intrusive reminders. So it's actually a core part of the disorder is trying to avoid thinking or talking about it. The fear of having to talk about it. So when I meet people for the first time, that I know they have had a trauma experience, I usually ask them not to tell me exactly what happened because I don't want to get them to talk about something before they're ready. You can really make someone sick by getting them to talk about something before they're ready. So avoidance is a, a common piece. And finally, their mood. So depression is a very common part of post-traumatic stress disorder. So she grew up in a situation where your dad had PTSD, would that even contribute to them having different degrees of PTSD or even being more susceptible to having PTSD? Potentially, and especially the way that Beth described her childhood, which was of a dad who had been a Vietnam War vet, had been 
affected by his experiences during the war, leading him to be violent, unpredictable. And any kind of abuse during childhood or exposure to violence, substance abuse, can make them more vulnerable, not just to PTSD, but any mental illness. And so absolutely, her dad's violence and the way that she described him would be quite important. It's also important as a loved one to be able to recognize when looking back, and you could see that it was quite helpful for her to go, oh, okay, now I know. He was awful in these different respects, but now I better understand why he was the way he was. It's difficult for loved ones because PTSD does look different for different individuals, and men and women tend to present quite differently. But the way she described her dad with his severe irritability, sometimes people becoming violent, substance use being a prominent factor because people are trying to settle down their symptoms, whether by drinking, smoking cannabis, whatever, to kind of avoid the thoughts and feelings. It's tough to figure out, and it took her to have her own experience to figure it out, but the more we understand PTSD and especially its impact through military and the risks associated with being in the military, that can help with identification for family members to be able to say, hey, I think something's going on here, and maybe you need to talk to someone. Beth talked about prolonged exposure therapy and how detrimental that was for her. You've talked about it before, that that's how they used to treat trauma and PTSD. Can you explain prolonged exposure therapy? Sure. And it's still a treatment for PTSD, but it's not a treatment for everyone. So the idea behind prolonged exposure is that you, I'm going to simplify it by saying that repeatedly telling the story of the traumatic event, and that means every part of it, what you saw, what you smelled, what you felt, uh, every sensory experience, going over it again and again and again, eventually calms your brain, helps you to overcome the emotional weight of that traumatic event. So this was when I first started treating PTSD. This was what all the psychologists were doing was prolonged exposure. I learned with time that for some people, it really was actually re-traumatizing and did not work very well. So I think we learn again and again in psychiatry that every brain is unique and has unique needs. This sort of flies in the face of what I said a few minutes ago about how talking about the trauma can be, for some people, really re-traumatizing. That's at the time when they're first traumatized and their brain is still very acutely trying to manage it. For some patients, talking about the trauma actually does help to take some of the power away from it. The idea behind therapy is to say, okay, it happened, but I'm not going to let it control my life anymore. And that's the idea behind prolonged exposure. But there are other therapies that some people find much more helpful, much more tolerable in the long term. And what are some of those therapies? Well, one of the best known is called EMDR, which is an eye movement reprocessing kind of therapy. It's actually very similar to cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT that we've talked about a lot, but it involves the therapist helping to move your eyes back and forth while you're bringing up emotionally laden content. It has a lot of evidence now for being quite helpful for patients who are struggling with PTSD. Cognitive behavioral therapy as in and of itself can be extremely helpful without doing all of the prolonged exposure. But now there's all kinds of innovative technologies when we're using virtual reality and 
the way that our brain works with with trauma and with really distressing memories, there are techniques to be able to extinguish those memories, but it takes a lot of work. And it's hard work, especially for someone whose brain is depressed, very anxious to be able to learn new skills. And so it's important that we support people to get their depression managed, manage their anxiety symptoms so that they're able to participate in the therapy, learn new skills, and leave the trauma behind. Is there a strong distinction between PTSD from war versus PTSD from other life events? Well, some people might argue with me on this, but the constellation of symptoms are the same. But I can tell you, having treated patients, a lot of military patients and patients who have had other kinds of trauma, that there are some features that are differentiators. And one of the most important was a lot of people, when they join the military, they view it as a calling. And their military experience is really a family experience. I was on a ship once when I was working with the military and, you know, everyone wakes up at this time and today we're wearing these outfits. There's a real family. We eat together. There's a real family kind of environment. And what happens when people develop PTSD related to military service is there's stigma, which is getting better with time, but continues to be a powerful influence on people's willingness to talk about it. I had too many military members say to me, I wish my leg had been blown off. At least people could see what has happened to me because it's all inside my head. But also this loss of family that comes with it because if you develop a serious mental illness like PTSD and you're no longer able to be deployed, the old saying used to be, if you're not deployable, you're not employable, people often aren't able to work anymore. And so not only do they lose their profession, what they love doing, but they also lose their family. And I think for organizations like Wounded Warrior and other veterans associations, one of the most powerful things they can do is give people that work family back again, their military family back again, because it's, a, it's experienced as a major loss. Is PTSD truly treatable or even curable? Well, PTSD is definitely treatable. I think one of the challenges with any mental illness that we know is the earlier you get treatment, the more likely it is that you're going to recover. Getting the right diagnosis early is so critical. And, you know, when you think about disorders like bipolar, when you look at the misdiagnosis rate, it's about 93%. It takes about 10 years to get the right diagnosis. The same is true for PTSD and other psychiatric disorders. We have very poor use of diagnostic tools. People are often misdiagnosed for years with other things. So it's absolutely treatable. The longer it goes on without treatment, the less likely you are to fully recover. So this is why we talk about these things, why you're so right that education is critical. I think when you have multiple wounds, like Beth has experienced with the physical injury, the traumatic brain injury, and the PTSD, those are individuals who are more vulnerable, but you can see that when you use multimodality kind of treatment, so yes, there may be a place for medication, for talk therapy, and in Beth's case, the power of exercise, the power of not just the exercise, the physical activity, but the community that comes with it, all of those are really important in someone being able to recover from a complicated disorder like PTSD. Ultimately, Beth found the most therapeutic experience 
through bringing sport back into our life. What are the benefits of sport and exercise to people who are struggling with mental health? But, and not just people that are athletes, but for everybody. Well, this to me is is a really good news story because people, when they're struggling with a mental illness, often feel helpless. In the worst possible situation, hopeless. And once you lose hope, you lose everything. One of the things that people truly can do for themselves when they're struggling with a mental illness is to be physically active. And I'll use depression as an, as an example. One of the ways that your brain recovers from depression is by growing brain cells. And exercise actually grows brain cells the same way that antidepressants grow brain cells. And the very good news part of this is that it only takes about 30 minutes a day of mild to moderate intensity exercise to actually grow new brain cells. What Beth is getting with her experience with the Wounded Warriors is actually twofold. So she's doing the physical activity, she's growing brain cells, so she's helping I really see it as a as a drug, as a treatment for depression and for anxiety. But one of the greatest protectors of PTSD is social support. And she's killing two birds with one stone here. She's getting the physical activity to grow brain cells, make her brain healthier, but she's also creating this community, has a community around her that understand her, love her, support her. And both of those pieces are critically important for recovery. And that's also when you look at the isolation part of PTSD. Well, if you get back into sport and you get back into group, that brings you around other people, which actually helps. Absolutely. There's never-ending benefits to physical activity, and she is a living example of that because she's found that to be the most powerful tool for her in recovery. You talk about sports being a critical part of your recovery. Can you tell us a little bit more about where you are with that? What what has become of you as an athlete since this experience? In the very beginning, I was handed my first recumbent trike, and it was horrible. Like, I was slow, and it hurt, but I kept doing it, and I kept like being able to go further and faster, and then I got addicted. So... For a long period of time, I really felt like I wanted to get into racing, like cycling. Paralympic committee, they don't have a recumbent frame. So I was going to have to change to either an upright trike or a hand cycle. And I just, I didn't want to do that. I liked my recumbent frame. I felt like that honored who I was and I was on it medically for a reason. And I'm a little bit stubborn sometimes. So I just kind of gave up on that one, which is slightly funny because now I am transitioning to a hand cycle and everyone wants to know if I'm still going to go chase my dreams of going to the Paralympics, but I will not be with cycling. I found, I went to the Warrior Games and we added track and field and rowing and powerlifting. And while I love all of those sports, mostly what I love is feeling like I really can do anything. And basically for me to be successful at something, I just have to decide that's what I want. I have to set my mind to it. I have to put the work in. That's one thing I think I've learned, the biggest thing I've learned through the sports. But uh, right now I'm currently training for uh, javelin for the Paralympics. So um, I have a lot of work to do, not where I quite need to be right now, but you know, the pieces are coming together. I've put a lot of training hours 
you know, and like I said, like even just changing my diet because I had gotten to a point where I, I have my habits, I have my way of doing things and I constantly being told you need to eat more in a day. You need more protein. You need more, you know, you need to eat more than twice a day. You need to eat you know, and not really be concerned with the calories, but to be looking at the type of calories. I've put all the pieces together, continuing to work, and I'm hopeful. I am chasing the 2024 Paralympic. It'd be really awesome to get to go. Well, I'd be there watching you, so <laughs> I hope you do go. Yeah. I look back and I think sports saved me, Beth. Do you feel the same? Yeah, absolutely. Because like I said, I, I really felt like I came back from Afghanistan. I shell up who I was. I lost my career. Really, I think in that moment before my injury, how I defined myself, I was a Chinook maintainer and crew chief. That's who I was. That's what I did. You know, every moment of my life was tied to that. I'd go to work. I'd come home. I'd study. I'd work out. I'd go to work the next day. It's all I did. I felt like I went from this Forrest Gump kind of career where I was always just in the right place at the right time. i excelled at everything I did. And then one day it was like, oh, you're too broken to continue forward. So we're going to medically retire you so that you can still have some benefits, but yeah, it'd be easier just to train someone to do your job than it would be to fix you and bring you back, which is true. I mean, even to this day, I don't think I would be retainable due to the my headaches and other stuff. So their call wasn't wrong, but it was a gut check. And then I went for a long period of time where I just felt useless. Sport kind of brought me back to realizing that um, the game wasn't over. My life wasn't over. I'm still here and I have an option. I could do something with myself or I could sit here and be miserable. I think actually the Wounded Warrior Project came in on that. And that's where they they call me every year on my birthday and say, happy birthday. And uh, is there anything, anything you need? And I was like, no, I'm fine. No, I'm good. You know, that's nothing you could do for me. I'm in. On that fourth year they called, I was like, actually, I heard you guys have a, a soldier ride program. How do I get involved in that? And I started building friendships with the people that worked at Wounded Warrior Project and other Wounded Warriors. So if I hadn't been for my occupational therapist giving me my first recumbent trike, I probably never would have gotten the connections I got with the Wounded Warrior Project. I don't think I would have grown nearly as much. You know, I was miserable kind of a shut-in. I didn't really leave my house other than for medical appointments. What I've learned as a psychiatrist is no one suffers alone. The people who love you also live this journey with you. And you mentioned that your sister is such a critical part of your life still with some of the physical limitations or challenges that you have. How has your family been impacted and how are they doing? I'm impacted probably a lot of ways. <laughs> um, they're, there for, they're there when I lose my cool for a second. Um, in the beginning, it was a lot worse. Um, with the with the TBI, I had a really hard time regulating my emotions. So I would get like really angry. And I wouldn't even understand why I was getting angry. And then it was kind of like a roller coaster. And then something else would happen and I would die laughing. And it was, it was a little bit like I was going nuts. But the truth, you know, I just, I had a hard time regulating my emotions. I get frustrated. In the beginning, I struggled to communicate. I would use wrong wrong words. I stuttered a whole lot and I would get just frustrated and agitated. So dealing with my moods around that. My son had a really hard time when I first got home. When I left, you know, he was like, you would do everything. You'd ride skateboards with me. You would do this, you would do that. We did everything together. 
and now you're home, but you're just sitting there. So it was like I, I completely disengaged from my life. I was physically there, but emotionally I was not. I think today with all the work we've done, all the work I've done, all the work they've done being patient and having to start recognizing when something is not right with me and be able to say, wait, what, what's actually going on? What, what aren't you understanding? You know, because sometimes like I have a, with the TBI, I have a processing delay a little bit. Sometimes I don't quite understand what you're saying or what's being asked of me. And so sometimes it's just a little communication issue, but it gets blown up in my emotions because I'm struggling with it. And I feel like everyone's looking at me like I'm an idiot. And, you know, so just learning how to, for them, it was learning how to spot when something wasn't connecting in my brain and being able to start asking questions or shoot it around, you know, but my family, my son and my sister have been the biggest supporters of me and all of my success is not mine alone. This whole journey wouldn't have happened without the two of them. Have you found a community that you connect with through Wounded Warrior Project? Like, is it mainly sport? Yeah, I would say um, through Wounded Warrior Project, there's actually, they have so many great programs. But sport is where it started. What I really like about Wounded Warrior Project is that a lot of times, if I'm looking for something and they don't have it, they have like this resource center that can point you in the right direction, help you, get you connected. Um, I, I've used their talk program when I was struggling to find a regular therapist or in between or if my therapist goes on vacation where, you know, I can just set up appointments and I call and we just talk. And it's not necessarily always therapy related. It could just be life related. But it was just someone to be there when I needed someone. And that's been huge. But I think really what I have gotten the most from Wounded Warrior Project is feeling like I am a part of them. Not just, they didn't just step in and help me, but they've given me opportunities to give back. I've met other people through them that I've been able to sort of mentor or to help or to say, hey, I, I know I found my answer over here. Come look over here. We'll see what we can find for you. Right. So it, was, it wasn't just what they could do for me, but that they gave me opportunities to give back. Um, which I think people need, especially when you're dealing with disability or, you know, mental health or where you're feeling inferior to feel like you're always taking, taking, taking it is sometimes it can take a toll on you and make you not want to get the help that you need because you feel like everyone sees you as a leech. But their willingness to help find people uh, that you could be a mentor through them or you could start a group in your area if there aren't a lot of activities going on in your area. You know, they have programs where you can do the training and be able to start setting things up. And then that draws people in. And then you're meeting new people in your own community. A lot of my friendships are across the U.S. because of the way that I compete and trainings I go to. People dispersed everywhere. A lot of them are through Wonder Warrior Project. Some of them are through other agencies. But it, is, it becomes kind of like family. So when you got back into sport, you said at first it was really, it was difficult. I can imagine yeah. if, if you're like me with sport too, you're probably always just good at things when you were growing up too, and you could always just do them. And that difficulty must have been frustrating for you. So who helped push you through that? Was it your sister and, and your boy? I think for me, I struggled with that on many levels. I'm me mechanically minded. And so I, like, I used to be able to just look at something and figure it out and put it together. And now it's like I'm struggling to put my senses together. 
And so there was like that big piece of frustration, but then my proprioceptors were damaged. So like, if I'm not looking in the beginning, it was really bad. Like you'd say, close your eyes and point to the three o'clock position on the clock. And I would be pointing at the one o'clock swearing that my arm is over here. And, you know, like I just, I didn't know where I was in time and space. My brain wasn't computing any of that. So I've done a lot of work in the gym and in the beginning it was very slow and frustrating because it was not just having to isolate a muscle group, but not knowing how to isolate that muscle group all of a sudden. Or like I go to do a movement and I'm using the completely wrong part of my muscle and they're like, no, you have to do it like this. So I think it was my spirit of perfectionism that kept me going to push through the hard times. And my son is always sitting right there telling me, you can do anything. You're awesome. You're amazing. You're my hero. You can do whatever. And that was a driving force, you know? And then on my good days, my sister would celebrate with me. And on my rough days, she'd be like, all right, so how can we make this better? How can you change this? What needs to change? What is where, like, she'd help me break down where the actual problem was so that I could figure out a way to fix it. Because, you know, like I said, it's, it's not really that in the beginning, I just really thought I lost everything. And then sport helped me realize that I just have to find a different way. Some people can just pick up their arm and make a movement and the right muscle will isolate. But for me, I have to, if I need my shoulder blade engaged, I need to engage it before I move my arm because otherwise I'm going to hinge at my hip. Like my brain is not paying attention to what's actually needed and required. It's actually a beautiful response because exercise helps to grow brain cells. It helps to rewire your brain. And when you've had a TBI, you need to rewire your brain. So uh, it you actually answered the question perfectly because what you were um, what you were describing was actually the active recovery from a TBI. Yeah. So Beth, how did you get into Wounded Warrior Project Soldier Ride program? And what was that first experience like? Um, well, my occupational therapist got me the trike and then I started training. There was a fellow veteran in my neighborhood that they had connected me with as she was a cyclist and she was involved in another organization. And so she would come out and ride with me a bunch of times and like just training up for the big race. And then uh, I went on this ride. It's not really a, it's kind of more like a challenge. It was like a seven day ride through, I want to say it was like 300, 400 miles in like six days of riding. So it was like a big deal. But while I was there, they always require the recumbents to have a push bar so that an upright cyclist can come alongside you and push you to help you get up hills and to maintain speed and all of that, which I found infuriating. Because uh, the the recumbent was the very first place I felt independent. And everything I did on that bike was hard work. To be told that it didn't matter how fast I was riding, I had to have this bar on there so they could help me because recumbents can't get up hills and recumbents can't do that. And so I was agitated with the way they viewed it. And one of the other participants said, hey, if you want to ride where they don't use push bars, you should go check out Wounded Warrior Project Soldier Ride. They don't go as far. They don't go as fast. But it's completely independent. So 
I was like, huh, maybe I'll think about that. So I had, I had made the, the mention to the, whoever it was that called me on my birthday and they set me up with the central team and the recruiter, Michelle Sanchez had called me and we had set it all up and I was going to go, I went to Houston for my first one. And like I said, I had pretty much been a shut in at this point for about three years. I went on the one other ride with the other program. And then other than that, I hadn't left my house other than to ride my bike around my neighborhood, around El Paso. So I got in the car and I started driving to Houston and I started having panic attacks and I like kept calling her. I was like, I'm turning around. I'm going home. I can't do this. This is ridiculous. This is, this is horrible. I can't do this. And she's like, well, if that's what you need to do, then you're free to do that. But I, I promise you, if you come, you know, there are going to be people here that get you. There are going to be people here that you can connect with. We have you. You will be supported if you can make the ride. You know, just drive out here. It'll be okay. And I was like, fine, I'll see how much further I can go. And I was all like irritated. I drive like another 100 miles because Texas is forever big. And uh, I called her back. I was like, I can't do this. This is insane. There's no way. And then she's like, well, if that's the choice you need to make, you know, we'll support you. But I'm telling you, if you make it here, So we basically did this song and dance for the whole ride. It was like uh, 700 miles, I think, of me backing out and then deciding to continue forward and trusting (laughs) that Wonder Warrior Project would be there for me. And these are people I'd never met and I knew nothing about. And so I think it was a gamble on my part, knowing I needed something, but not knowing how to connect or like still being unsure of who I was you know, now, you know, and then I got there and sure enough, there are a bunch of other warriors who all also struggled to get there. Some were super excited and some had never ridden a bike before. And some were, you know, at the next level already and they're just coming back to give back. And it was just a really good experience. The staff was caring. Bike mechanic, Lauren, the partner in uh, Michelle, became mentors of mine and they helped me along the way in many aspects and encouraged me to continue to strive after that next level. They saw me as a person, not my injury. So not turning around for the soldier ride, was that a pivotal moment in your recovery and did that change your life? I think it definitely did change my life. I think that was the beginning of me realizing that I really wasn't alone. You know, I had found cycling before that but I still felt very alone in it. Like I felt like a sense of pride and and independence on the bike, but I also didn't have anyone around me that understood the struggle that could understand that one day I can go this far and the next day I physically can't. I didn't have a lot of people in my life that fully understood the depth of the damage that that incident had done to me. So showing up, Continuing forward and showing up to the event, I met other people who have gone through similar circumstances that could relate to me, not just from the physical disability, but from the mental health component, from the fear of knowing that you're not who you used to be. And I was confident with who I used to be, but now I'm coming here broken and worried that they're not going to find value in me and to show up and have this organization full of people that work for them and the people that they are working for to have all of them 
be right there willing and able to be a support. Like, it's not just like, Hey, we all get on bikes and we go for a little ride, but there are moments in every ride where someone is struggling and to have 20 other warriors riding beside you, telling you, you got this. It's okay. Just, you know, keep moving your pedal. You know, one, one more, one more stroke. You got this, you know, to, to have that camaraderie and to have those people speak life into you. And it starts with a bike ride, but that bike ride is really just symbolic, I think, to our lives. And that when things get tough, we just need to keep moving forward. Keep turning the cranks. You'll get where you're going eventually. So, Beth, when you're recovering, I know that it feels like it's endless. It's an uphill battle. Were there any really important milestones that you can share with us? I think a couple come to mind. The 50-mile race, that was more than I had ever ridden before in any one time. And the safety officers were concerned that I shouldn't do the whole 50 miles because they weren't sure that I could keep up and that it would make their safety vehicle that trailed the race be too far behind. So if there was an incident ahead of me, you know, but I had already registered and paid for it and they knew I was coming in a recumbent and nobody, you know, they had no problem taking my money. So I was like, I'm, I'm doing it. I don't need your permission. <laughs> I just got on my bike and started pedaling. But in that moment, then I, it really became, I wanted to get faster and faster. And I did the tour to Tucson. It's 101.5 miles. And I came in, I was the first recumbent, not the first female, but the first recumbent period to cross the line. And there was 40% of the field still on the course. So, you know, I may not have been in the middle of the pack, but I definitely wasn't in the trail of the pack. So in that moment, I realized that, you know, a lot of people put limits on us. You know, you're a recumbent trike rider you can't only go so fast you can't climb hills you can't do this but i think it was in that moment that i realized that my limits solely come from me from what i give myself mentally message wise from how much work i'm willing to put in for it for how much time and effort i put into planning because a lot of what i've done since then has required extra planning has required this is how I think I need to go about it. And then you get three steps in and realize, oh, it's not actually going to work because of this other thing that I, I, couldn't, I didn't fully understand. So then you have to reformulate your plan and keep moving forward. And I don't know if able-bodied people have to do that as much, but I can tell you that dealing with my injuries, both mental, my processing stuff and mental health and my physical limitations that I have really come to a place where I truly believe that I could do absolutely anything I set my mind to. Some of them is going to take a whole heck of a lot more time and effort than others. But if you really want something, it's all about the effort you're willing to put into it. And I think that's the Tour de Tucson was a pivotal moment for me when I realized it doesn't matter if I'm on a recumbent. I am fast. I'm not fast for a girl. I'm not fast for a recumbent. I'm just fast. And uh, it's all effort and work. We decide what our limitations are. And in that moment, I vowed that I wasn't going to let other people set my limits for me moving forward. So a lot of times when people say I can't do something, that then becomes the challenge to prove them wrong because I will not let you set my limit for me. Beth, we've talked a lot about the impact of adaptive sports on your physical recovery. 
as in part of your recovery overall. Can you talk about what adaptive sports means for wounded warriors, particularly around their mental health, the recovery from mental illness? It's, it's easy to see how sport impacts us physically, but emotionally it has given me a place to work through my anxiety, a way to work through some anger. Having something to train for, having a reason, along with the anxiety and the PTSD, I also struggle with with depression. And so there are some days where I just I just don't feel like I have the emotional energy to face the world. But you know, having that event hanging out there uh, over my head, knowing that on this date I need to show up and I want to show the world that your life isn't over after injury. And so there's like some self-made, I think, uh, pressure that gets me out of bed on the days where I just am like, I just don't want to do it today. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with some stuff and I'm whatever, but I always feel better after a workout. I always feel like my spirit feels lighter. You know, after you work out, Corey, you might understand this better. You just feel like you've accomplished something. If I do nothing else today, I did that. I got up and I did the workout I didn't want to do and I got out of bed and the day just kind of seems I think sometimes uh easier to manage after that like because sometimes getting out of bed is the hardest part for me having that pressure to compete helps me to stay motivated and to not just get stuck in the the darkness that sometimes still can creep in so for somebody that's tuning into watching the adaptive sports and games, what would you tell them beyond sport that they're watching? They're watching true grit and resilience. They're watching people that have had their lives altered in a way that they weren't sure how they were going to continue forward, yet we continue forward. That they are watching people who are not ready to quit. They're watching people who are in a daily battle. And a lot of times that's what these events are. They are a bunch of us coming together and battling that day to be healthy, to be productive, to be a member of society again and not stuck in our isolated isolation of depression. One of the best gifts that I have received from my patients were my military members who had PTSD and they taught me something incredible that only they could teach me, which was that people would have experienced some kind of horrifying trauma. And you need a pretty horrifying trauma to end up having PTSD. And as they're recovering, would say, I wouldn't have asked for this to happen, obviously. But because of this, I have this gift this good thing came to me because of this horrible thing. And through that, I learned that out of the most horrible things, good things can come. And I wonder if that's ever come to you. Do you have a sense of, yeah, this sucks, what I've gone through, but that gifts have come? Absolutely. I think the first four or five years after my injury were very dark. I really, truly did not want to be here. But I have this son. And he's amazing. And I want to say within a year of my injury, he was diagnosed with Asperger's. And because of my injury, I was home to get him all the help we could get him. He struggled to communicate and to connect on multiple levels. We ended up 
putting him in occupational therapy and neurofeedback and all these things. It was like three times a week, hour and a half, two hours a day. But I, because I wasn't working, because I was home, we were able to also, all the things he was learning at therapy, implement in our home. And to see the growth and change in him and know that he is now an 18-year-old who is capable of holding conversation, working a job, living life, being independent. And had I not been injured, I would still be in service and I would not have been there to watch him change, to give him the therapy help that he needed. It's all about your perspective and how you choose to look at it. Beth, so we know there's going to be other soldiers, military members that are going to listen to this. And they're going to be struggling right now and trying to find purpose just where you are at. What would you tell them if you could speak to them about Wounded Warrior Project, getting involved with that community? What would you say to them? Now is the time. Get off the sideline. Get back in the game and know that you're worth it. You're worth it. You deserve recovery. And no matter what the event was that is impacting you today, that doesn't define who you are. Who we are at a core is much deeper than what we do and what we can physically do. And uh, just to get the help, don't be afraid. Don't waste your time. You know, I, I, I regret that I wasted so many years because that was part of my reason for not going with Wind Warrior Project. I felt like there were more people that were more impacted, that had worse issues. And I didn't feel like I should take up that space. And the truth is I could have found healing sooner and I could have experienced more joy had I allowed myself to take the space of me. You have to value yourself enough to put the effort in. And if you reach out, I guarantee you that there will be someone there for you. Even if Wonderware Project doesn't have the services you need, they will know who you need and they can get you connected. Reach out and someone will be there for you. That's so incredibly common, our military heroes who go out and risk their lives for us. And then when they are hurt, they think, I'm making too big a deal. I can get through this. I have heard that over and over and over again. So thank you for sharing that from someone who had to come to that place and, and then realized, no, I need this help. I, I need this to be able to move forward. What do you think your greatest achievement is? I'm still here and I'm smiling. I've had a lot of achievements. But I think more importantly is that I'm still here and I'm breathing and I'm trying to make a difference. I am trying to make the path for others behind me easier. I mean, I get a lot of worldly accomplishments. I've, I've completed a lot of races. I've gotten a lot of medals. But at the end of the day, none of those seem to really stack up to the same as the fact that I'm still here and I'm still trying to be better today than I was yesterday. And we can't really ask anyone for more than that, you know, to not to just be happy with the status quo, but to continue to try to grow and change and improve the world. PlayersTribute.com